For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. The Death of the Son of God, Luke 23. We saw last week Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying in agony over what was, he was about to face. He, in his prayer, he said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. And it's as though Jesus is staring at a cup. I don't know if you've ever um, lost a bet where you had to drink or eat something disgusting. <laughs> and you know you got to do it, and it takes a little while to get your will hardened in order to do what you know you need to do. That's nothing compared to what Jesus faced here on the night, <laughs> the night before his death. You know, he's, in the Old Testament, the, the cup is the, is the judgment of God. And he knew that he would drink the cup of the judgment of God that had been prepared before the foundations of the world. Crucifixion. He knew what awaited him that night. He was the only one who fully realized it. He had known this for who knows how long in his earthly life. And yet he knew that this was the reason why he came into the world, because he had a a purpose to fulfill, a death that must be undergone. And the reason why this was so terrifying is because of all the things that he knew that it would involve. He knew, for one, that crucifixion would be preceded by flogging. You know, these, in, in his day, they knew what crucifixion was, even though they did not like to talk or even think about it. We don't understand as much today about this, and so we do need to give a little bit of detail here, and I want to do that at the beginning before we read the story. But he knew it would be preceded by flogging. And if you've seen The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, that's actually a pretty good rendition of the various elements of the final night and, and day and afternoon of Jesus' life. And it's, I mean, that movie's rated R for violence. It's, it's um, re- revolt, revolting at times. It's, it, it's nauseating. And I'm going to try to describe and show a few images here tonight without grossing us out too much. So bear with me. But this is one picture of flogging that is from this movie. This is one of the earlier in the, in the day. The t- it's one of the tamer pictures of it. But um, in fact, this scene was shot. He had a board on his back, and uh, the guy with the, with the whip, you know, this whip had multiple strands. It had pieces of bone and rock uh, in the end of that in order to tear as much skin as possible, and um, there was a board on his back. There was one point, though, where the actor playing the torturer missed and hit him in the back. It said it left a 14-inch gash. He said he could barely breathe. He sunk to the ground. It knocked the wind out of him. He couldn't even inhale. Uh, he, he just felt like he'd been hit, hit really hard in, in an athletic event. The actor who played this, uh, played Jesus here, Jim Caviezel. Michael Wilkins talks about flogging. He says, flogging in the Jewish synagogue was limited to 40 lashes by the law, but no such restrictions limited Roman flogging. Yeah, they could flog as long as they wanted to. In many cases, the flogging itself was fatal. It wouldn't even get to the cross. When the condemned man, because women were not flogged, was tied to a post, he was flogged with the cruel flagellum, a leather strap interwoven with pieces of bone and metal that cut through the skin, leaving the skin hanging in shreds. The repeated flaying often left the bones and intestines showing, and the person was not infrequently near to the point of death when he was taken to be executed. Yeah, so not only, you know, it would rip the skin and muscle off the person's back. Um, not only could you count the bones, but there are times where you could count the kidneys and the intestines, and it, it's, it's truly brutal. We, we can't even imagine it. 
He also knew that he'd be stripped naked, which was humiliating for them back then. Repeatedly stripped naked before all of his enemies, before the, the crowds to pass by. In fact, they, they wanted crucifixion to be as public an event as possible because it was intended to be a warning, a deterrent for criminals that said, when you mess with Rome, this is what you get. And so they would, they would crucify these guys near the most prominent road that they could find, a, a gate in and out of the city. I mean, imagine driving into Columbus and seeing right there off I-71 the, a, a criminal hanging there, executed. Um, <clears throat> Jesus also knew this was reserved for slaves and the worst offenders. It was such a horrific punishment. Josephus says the cross is, quote, the most wretched of deaths. Cicero, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. You did not talk about this. This was the, the horrific, dirty practice of the Roman Empire that was saved for maximum shock and terror value. Jesus knew that of the prolonged torture that the cross involved, that it was not as simple as what a Roman citizen could get, which was beheading. No, they would try to draw this out and inflict as much pain as possible on the criminal. D.A. Carson describes it. He says, whether tied or nailed to the cross, Jesus was nailed. The victim endured countless paroxysms, those are spasms, Countless paroxysms as he pulled with his arms and pushed up with his legs to keep his chest cavity open for breathing and then collapsed in exhaustion until the demand for oxygen demanded renewed paroxysms. So as they're hanging on the cross, they're slumped down and they were in a position where they couldn't breathe without pushing up with the legs and pulling up with the arms, sucking in a breath of air and then slumping back down. The scourging, the loss of blood, the shock from the pain all produced agony that could go on for days ending at last by suffocation, cardiac arrest, or loss of blood. Average time of death on the cross, 36 hours. Some made it as long as nine days, we find from ancient history. When there was reason to hasten death, the execution squad would smash the victim's legs. Death followed almost immediately, either from shock or from collapse that cut off breathing. Yeah, they'd come and break the legs. Jesus' time on the cross was so short, they didn't even have time to do that. He died within just a few hours. But in spite of all this, Jesus knew the physical torment wasn't even the worst part. He knew that he would be mocked by his enemies with their smug triumph that they were right and he was wrong. He knew he would be left alone by his friends. He had predicted all of this well in advance. We saw last week that he was there as Peter denied him a third and final time. But he would also be left alone by the Father, breaking apparently a union that had never been broken since the beginning of time, since before the beginning of time, as as the Father poured out the judgment that was due to the human race for our sin. He poured it out into His Son as Jesus hung there on the cross. And so this was a time of torment, a time of agony, and a time of aloneness. And yet in spite of all of this, as He stared at this cup, He comes out of His prayer time saying this, Yet, Father, not my will but Yours be done. He aligns his will with the Father. He's strengthened supernaturally by God to do what he needs to do, to suffer what he needs to suffer. And he returns from prayer and wakes up his guys, as we saw last week, and the Romans show up. But we'll pick up at his trial before the Jewish authorities. These are not the Roman authorities yet. We'll pick up at his trial before the Jewish authorities in, in the courtyard of the high priest and in the house of the high priest. It says the men who are guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him before any sort of uh, conviction. There were so many illegal things about this trial. 
They blindfolded him and they, prophes- they demanded, prophesy, who hit you? You're such a prophet. Who's going to hit you next? Who hit you last time? And they said many other insulting things to him. And at daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. This is still the wee hours of the morning, maybe 5 a.m. If you're the Messiah, they said, tell us. They're trying to get something they can convict him on. They weren't authorized to kill people, and they had some respect for due process, I guess. But ultimately, they had to get something that was bad enough that the Romans would kill him, because the Jews were not allowed to kill. They didn't have that authority. And Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you wouldn't answer. But I will tell you this, he says, from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Quoting Daniel 7, quoting from a vision where Daniel sees the end of human history, where he sees the Messiah, one that looked like a son of man, ride in on the clouds, where he sees him sit down at the right hand of God the Father and where all authority in the world is given over to him and he is crowned and officially anointed king of the world. And Jesus says, that's me. How ridiculous this would have sounded as he's handcuffed in their power and about to go to his death to claim, I'm the king of the world. And one day you're going to see it, mark my words, in fulfillment of the scriptures. They all ask, so are you the son of God then? And Jesus, surprisingly quiet at this entire trial throughout this whole night, he says, you say that I am. Which means, yeah, but probably not in the same sense that you think I am. I think we use those terms differently. And then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. And so the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate under the charge of blasphemy as far as their inner circle goes, although they had to frame it in such a way that Pilate would kill the guy. Pontius Pilate, the Roman authority over that region at that time, says they began to accuse Jesus, saying, we found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. He did not oppose paying taxes. Uh, It claims to be Messiah, a king. Yeah, they're kind of framing it in terms that Pilate would find offensive. So Pilate asked Jesus, so you're the king of the Jews, huh? You said it. Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, there's actually a longer period of questioning here recorded in the other Gospels. But he finally says, look, I don't find any basis for a charge against this man. He's innocent. Pilate's first declaration of Jesus' innocence. But they insisted, no, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his, his teaching. He started in Galilee and now he's come all the way here. This guy's a threat. We've got to do something about him, Pilate. And Pilate sees his opportunity. He says, oh, he's from Galilee. And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. He says, oh, not my problem. Herod normally had his, his uh, seat of government up on the coast at Caesarea, but he would come down to Jerusalem for the Passover. He ruled over the Galilee, Galilee area. This is, this is Herod Antipas, not Herod the Great who killed the babies when Jesus was born. 
This is a different Herod. He happened to be in town, and so he sends him over there, hoping Herod will do something with him. Well, Herod was pretty excited to see Jesus, greatly pleased, because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. So you can see there the extent of Herod's interest in Jesus. Maybe he'll do something cool for me. Jesus, though, is completely unresponsive to Herod. Herod plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. Totally silent. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. And then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. And that day, Luke tells us, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they'd been enemies. So there's some sort of an alliance here over their mutual actions toward Christ. Well, so Pilate's got Jesus back in his court now. And he called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. And he said to him, look, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence. I found no basis, absolutely none, for your charges against him. He declares him innocent a second time. Neither is Herod. He sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'm going to punish him and then release him. How about that? He's trying to satisfy them. Punish him even though he's innocent. And when he says to release him, he's referring to a practice that they would do every Passover where they would release a criminal. In fact, they would, they, Mishnah says they would sacrifice an extra Passover lamb kind of as substitute for the criminal that they would release. And so Herod's like, look, we always release somebody anyway. How about we, how about we compromise here? Let's just make Jesus that guy. I'll, I'll, I'll beat him pretty good for you. And then we'll just call it even, okay? Well, they were upset about this. The whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Well, there was this other, this other criminal. Looks like he was scheduled to be crucified that day with two other guys who were maybe his buddies, who were his partners in crime. This guy's name was Barabbas. His full name was actually Jesus Barabbas. We learn in Matthew. And they say, no, we want, we want the criminal. We want the insurrectionist, the one who'd murdered people, who had actually tried to lead a revolt. That's the one that we want. This crowd who had been praising Jesus just that Sunday, on Palm Sunday, now has turned on him when they realize he's not the Messiah we're looking for. We want one that'll at least try to overthrow the Romans. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. He was in danger of a mob here. One of the tactics the religious leaders would use is they would get the mob stirred up and then they would go to Pilate with the angry mob out there as kind of a negotiating tactic. For the third time, he spoke to them, why? What crime has the man committed? I found him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, look, I'll have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison 
for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. The other Gospels tell us that Pilate gets a bowl of water and he comes out and he washes his hands in front of him. And he says, I wash my hands of this matter. If only it were that easy, Pilate. If only your guilt could come off with soap and water. The only thing that can cleanse the guilt of Pilate and the guilt of any of us is the blood of Christ, the blood of the man whose death sentence he's just pronounced. And even though Pilate thought he was the judge that day and Jesus was on trial, we see now in history that the tables are really reversed. The Pilate was the one on trial and he failed miserably that day, as did everyone else. And so they gave him the standard mocking and flogging before the crucifixion that was given to failed leaders of revolutions. Matthew, Mark, John, all tell us more about this. In fact, we even know from, from history what they would do to, to prisoners especially ones who had, who had led revolts and had failed. The way they would mock them. Michael Wilkins, again, says Roman soldiers in Jerusalem at the time were known to play a cruel game with condemned prisoners. The prisoner was dressed up like a burlesque king and used as a game piece. They would roll dice, and with each roll of dice, the prisoner king was moved around a game board they actually had etched into the floor. We found different tiles from this. And so they're just having a good old time, playing a, playing a board game with this prisoner, mocking him, heaping abuse on him, showing him just how little they thought of him. All for the entertainment of the troops, they heard verbal and physical abuse at the mock king. One of the red cloaks worn by the Roman soldiers became a mock royal robe. Plated branches, woven branches with thorns became a mimic crown. They placed a crown of thorns on Jesus' head. And a common wooden staff was a nasty hoax for a ruler's scepter. This staff is used to beat Jesus again and again around the head as they spit at him and they mock him. And we see all of this in the gospel accounts as well. The way they were treating Jesus perfectly lines up with what else we know from secular history. And so Jesus, humiliated, looked maybe something like this as he stood there ready to walk the road to Calvary, the road to the place of the cross. Luke tells us as the soldiers led him away, they see Simon from Cyrene who was on his way in from the country. And they put the cross on him and they made him carry it behind Jesus. And so we see these other characters begin to enter the story. We see Simon, this guy who was just passing through, pressed into service to, to carry the cross. You know, they didn't carry the whole cross. That would have been over 300 pounds. Just the cross beam... But even that could be 80, 100 pounds. Jesus was in no state to carry his cross. And so they had someone else carry it for him, the length of that road that led outside the city to the place of the crucifixion. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. So who were the tough disciples that stood by Jesus to the very end? Just the women. Women always portrayed positively in Luke's gospel and in all the gospel accounts. At a certain point, Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you'll say, Blessed are the childless women and wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They'll say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. 
For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? He's again predicting the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He says, look, if they're doing this to me now, wait till you see what happens 40 years from now on that devastation that I predicted that would come on Jerusalem and on the temple. Josephus tells us that they crucified so many people when the Jews revolted in 70 AD, when they put that revolt down. He said they were running out of room to put the crosses and out of crosses to put the bodies on. It was a wholesale massacre. And Jesus says, this is nothing compared to what's coming on you guys. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. And these two other men, these two criminals, at first they were both heaping insults on him, but one of those criminals would change his tune later, as we'll read in Luke's account. But, you know, these two criminals, were, were they Barabbas' partners in crime? Did Barabbas go down to the crucifixion that day? How strange would that have been for him? To go down and to see these other two men, perhaps people that he knew, that, he, that were part of his revolt. To see the cross that was probably prepared for him. A cross that he should have been hanging on. A cross that it wasn't until that morning when they came to his jail cell and unlocked him that they told him not come on down to take up your cross, but you're a free man. How strange would that have been for the notorious criminal to be standing there free and for the innocent man to be hanging on the cross under judgment. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. So it's just Jesus and the other two criminals. For anyone walking along that day, it would have looked like three terrible people, three terrible men hanging there suffering for their crimes. And notice how it's very terse, it's very short when it says they crucified him. This was not something they went into gory detail on. You know, again, it would have looked something like this as Jesus hung there on the cross, streaked with blood, emaciated, uh, beaten, almost beyond recognition. That's what Isaiah 53 says about it. Hanging there with the nails through his wrists and the single nail through his ankles. And excruciating pain, that's where we get the word excruciating from is the cross crucifixion. But what does Jesus say in this hour? He uses his precious last strength to say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus continues to forgive his enemies even in the face of the most brutal torment and persecution. Well, the soldiers started dividing up his clothes by casting lots. That's also in fulfillment of the Old Testament Scripture, Psalm 22. A psalm where David sees a vision, a first-person vision, where he sees himself hanging on a cross. He looks down, he's, he's naked, he can count all his bones. He sees uh, soldiers gambling for his clothing. This was all foretold in advance. The people stood watching him. The rulers even sneered at him. This was their chance to rub it in in the final moment of victory. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. They couldn't have seen the irony in that statement until much later. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. Well, let's think about that. Jesus is hanging there on the cross. Why? 
because he's the Messiah, because he's the chosen one, and because he's hanging there so that he can save others. He has 12 legions of angels at his disposal, he said earlier that night. Thousands of angels could come to defend him, could take everybody there down. But what would happen if he called in the angels and they brought him down from the cross? He couldn't save others. And yet he's hanging there because he is the king. And because he's showing them, if you want to be the greatest, you need to be the least of all. And he's hanging there dying for their sins, as predicted by the scriptures. The soldiers also came up and mocked him again. They offered him wine vinegar in fulfillment of Psalm 69. And they said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. The same taunt. And there was a written notice above him. The written notice, you see depictions of the cross, like this one here. You can see there's um, the vertical piece, the cross beam, but then there's this placard. And this placard was the certificate of debt. This was a list of the things that the criminal had done wrong. And what they would do is they would write the charges and they would hang it around the neck of the criminal and he would have to, he would carry that around with him. So if he went to jail, he went to prison, he would, he would have that with him until he got to the end, he'd served his sentence and what he would write on there is, is it paid in full, it's finished, it's done. The, the, the justice has been served, the penalty has been paid and he was free. Well, with crucifixion, they would just take it with them to the cross because there was no paying off that debt. Death was the punishment. But they would hang it up there so you didn't, you didn't know simply not to mess with Rome, but you knew specifically what sort of things would get you nailed onto a cross. But with Jesus, his certificate of debt, Pilate said three times, I can't find anything wrong with this guy. And so what did he write on there? He wrote this. This is the king of the Jews. He wrote it in three different languages which really ticked off the religious leaders. They're like, no, no, you should write, he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate's like, look, what I've written, I've written, okay? He was not usually very cooperative with the religious leaders. And so Jesus had no crimes. Although Pilate, he wrote better than he knew. That is actually why Jesus was hanging there. Not for the crime of being the king of the Jews, but for the destiny for the title, because that was his very identity. And because it's the king, he came to offer up his life for his people. So that there would be people in his kingdom when he comes back. But essentially, it's a blank certificate of debt nailed to the cross above Jesus. Well, Luke tells us it was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon because the sun itself stopped shining. Not a solar eclipse, which can only last a maximum of eight minutes and can't happen at full moon, which is when Passover was. No, this was the darkness of the judgment of God cast down upon the land. And we look at the brutality of this event. We know who Jesus is. We've studied Luke's gospel. And we wonder ourselves, why did all of this have to happen? Why? Well, the answer is because there's a problem with humanity. You know this. 
human race has been broken ever since our first ancestors turned aside from God and introduced a thing called sin, otherwise known as evil. And you know, we look out at the evil in this world, and even we get upset sometimes. We get disgusted by it. You ever been watching a television program, like a news program, and you're just hearing these news reports, and you're like, I can't take this. This is too depressing. I'm changing the channel. You ever been watching even, you know, some of the fictional uh, television programs? They're just so disturbing. It's, it's a little bit too much to take sometimes. You change the channel. Well, <clears throat> you know, and that's us. You know, we're, we're mired in this. We're kind of used to evil. We commit evil. We can turn our eyes away whenever we don't want to. We don't even know but a small fraction of all the evil that's happening in this world. The Bible says God sees things from an even clearer perspective. You see, God, he's never committed evil. He's not desensitized to it. He's not living down in the midst of it. He dwells, he's perfect. He's never committed any, he's never done anything wrong. God also doesn't need to watch the news or happen to be present when an evil act is committed to know that it happened. In fact, there's a lot of things that we don't think are that bad, that God gets just as disgusted by. Like when you know the thing you're supposed to do and you don't do it. Like failure to love perfectly, like he does, and sacrificially. And you know, God, you know, it's like you can almost imagine watching this television channel with this horrible report of, of evil somewhere in the world. You know, and imagine a second screen next to that, and two screens above that. Imagine a whole wall with these television screens piping different stories of evil. Right, right into your eyes. Wherever you look, you see that. Imagine then it stretches out as far as you can see in every direction, above and below, and that you have the, the mental capacity to take it all in. God can't turn away. God can't close his ears to the cries of the victims. God sees it all. You know, from God's perspective... And the way God feels about evil it might be something like this. I have a very short one-minute video here. Let's go ahead and roll that. darkness. The Son of God opened up an infinite soul to absorb an infinite amount of judgment for an uncountable number of sins. And He poured out His judgment onto the Son.
This is why we find Jesus crying out in John 19, 36. It is finished. The thing they used to write on the certificate of debt when it was paid off. He cries out, it is finished. And at that very moment, Luke tells us the curtain of the temple was torn in two. What is the curtain? It's that big, thick, it was 30 feet wide. It was 60 feet tall. It was the thickness of a man's hand. A curtain that separated the Holy of Holies. The place where God symbolically dwelt. It separated that room from everywhere else. They could only go in there once a year. And that veil made a very loud statement when God assigned that to be there in the Old Testament. God said, stay out. You cannot come into my presence. You're sinful. I'm holy. I'm a righteous judge. And yet at that very moment, it's as though two giant hands ripped down, reached down and ripped that temple in two, that veil. As one artist depicts it, the shock there must have been on the faces of the priests on this big day of Passover to see their veil torn in, in, in two and to have nothing standing between them and the most holy place. Of course, tradition tells us, what did they do? They stitched it back up and went right on with business as usual. They must have. The temple continued to function for another 40 years. And then Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Quoting Psalm 31.5. This was a prayer that young Jewish boys would pray before they went to bed at night. And so we see the quiet confidence that Jesus gave up his life. A confidence that you also can have if you place your trust in Jesus. If you allow him to place your sins onto that blank spot onto his certificate of debt, if you ask him to do that, then you also can die confidently like he did, knowing that you're committing your spirit into the hands of the Father and that he will see you home. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. And the Son of God died. There's one more episode here that we skipped over. There's an interaction Jesus had with those two criminals that I think is significant. I want to conclude with this. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. This is earlier before his death. He said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. He said, don't you fear God? You're under the same sentence. We're punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. And then he turns and says, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. A man who had committed more crimes than we could even imagine. 
turns at his final hour and begs Jesus for mercy. How does Jesus respond? Does he say, you're actually a criminal. You've said so yourself. You're getting what you deserve. You think you can just come in here at the end of your life, after the life you've lived, and get forgiveness for all of you've done? No. But that's not what he said. What he said to this guy moments before his death was this. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a great model for what it means to come to Christ. Notice how he admits, this is just, I deserve death on a cross. But Jesus, will you please have mercy on me? Will you remember me when that day comes? I can't save myself anymore. He was way beyond the point where he might be able to work something out. And that's what God asks of you. He asks you to turn to him in much the same way, to admit your sins. To admit, I deserve, I deserve eternal judgment. That would be justice. But, Jesus, will you remember me? Will you forgive me for all that I've done? Can I transfer mine over to your cross, Jesus, and allow you to take the punishment for what I deserve? You know, the good news here is paradise paradise still to come, that the death of Christ is not the final word. Now Jesus would rise from the dead on Sunday morning. And his crucifixion, his death, can take the place of your death. And his resurrection can guarantee your resurrection so that you can face death with hope so that you can know that even though you're going to sleep that you can confidently commit your spirit into the Father's hands and that he will see you safely home. And that's Luke 23. Yeah, Lord, we know the reason this is called Good Friday is not because of what that what happened there was morally good. It was the greatest evil act in the history of the human race. And yet, we call it good because of the results that it's gained. It was for the joy set before you that you endured the cross, despising the shame, and you sat down at the right hand of God. We thank you that you died for us. That even though you were innocent, you'd done nothing wrong. You died in our place, Lord, and you paid the debt. You've opened the way into the the throne room of the Father, and that this demonstrates your love and your justice. I pray that we would live our lives eternally in gratitude, Lord, no matter what bad things happen to us. We know as Christians that thanks to the cross, how could we ever feel sorry for ourselves? We also know too, Lord, there's probably people here in this room who have never placed their trust in Jesus, and I pray that that's exactly what they would do tonight. No matter what they've done, even if they're worse than that criminal on the cross, God, we know that that's not where the focus is. The focus is on what Jesus has paid. And you say that whoever trusts in him will not be disappointed. Amen.
This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.